0: Now, uh, as you know, this has been the kind of like the, the main foundational section of our of our Bible Institute. I suspect the Institute will go for <coughs> three years, <coughs> maybe just a little bit longer. Uh, we'll pick up a lot of stuff uh, out of the people ministry, working the two together for those of you that are involved in that. Also, we'll pick up a lot of stuff, you know, just on Thursday night, and, and I'll be making references to it. But uh, what I did was, uh, because I want you to get a good grasp and understanding of the Scriptures, and uh, so I took the Bible, which (coughs) can be a very complicated book to understand if you don't get it in the right format, and I I broke it down into uh, 17 or 18 components. Uh, And our job now, this session, is to take those components one by one Define them, really lay them out for you, <coughs> separate them from the rest of the uh, things in the Bible, and then once we get them all together, you know, put them back together, and then you'll see the whole consistency of the whole Bible. So, you know, just by way of a quick review here, we, uh, you know, we saw Genesis one, we kn- and what took place with the fall of Lucifer. Um, we talked about the rebuilding of God's heavens and how uh, that fits into the scheme of everything. Well, we, then we moved into Adam and Eve, and we looked at that. That's a that's a vital component. The next major issue was Noah and the flood. Uh, after that, we began to see the uh, calling out of Abraham and how that really uh, does what begins the nation of Israel. And we talked about the five stages of Israel. Um, then six, the importance of them getting down into Egypt and how that fits into everything. So, you, you know, you're getting a, an overall good <coughs> overview of the Bible with the details of each section that really helps you put the whole Bible together. We saw then the calling out and how important that was. Uh, we saw Israel established under the kings, how important that was. Then we began to look at the demise of Israel. And uh, then we saw them go into the captivity then we saw that 400 years, and we talked about that and brought us up to the first coming of Christ. Uh, and then uh, uh, we talked about the church age. And, and last time, uh, we talked about the, uh, about the tribulation period. And uh, <coughs> today, we want to cover the second coming of Christ. And we, we want to look at that and, uh, and begin to put that all together for you. And, uh, and we might move into the millennium along with that. <clears throat> but without a doubt, the theme of the Bible, uh, we know, is a kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And, and um, along with that, we talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you know, uh, as it lays out through the Bible. And that is all true and I showed you how that the kingdom of heaven is here, and then it's gone, and then it's back, and then the kingdom of God, and then all that, how that works, we went through all of that. But the theme of the Bible, along with that kingdom, will be, the, will be the second coming of Christ. Every event in history, every event in history will point to uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a pronounced time, um, not only in history, but in the Bible, that it 's designated as um, the day of the Lord or that day you 'll find that phrase hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and, and when you find it then you 're going to find it uh, as it 's laid out uh, you know uh, as that particular day and the Thursday night we talked about the Uh, not being ignorant of the seven things. And and one of them was the one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. There's a dating system in the Bible uh, for the second coming of Christ. And it's not a date where you're going to put it down like on January 15th or whatever. But the Bible talks about uh, the day and the hour no man knoweth. But Paul makes it very clear that we as believers should know the times and the seasons. And he likens the coming of Christ to a woman in travail, a woman that's going to have a child. And that's a great illustration because, uh, you know, when you go into the doctor, when you first find out that you're going to have a baby, uh, the doctor will, based on when they think you got pregnant, he's going to give you a due date. And that due date is the approximate time of which the baby's going to come. Most women never hit their due date. I mean, you do find some that do, and that's just the exception. does prove the rule. But every woman knows or should know that uh, that even though she doesn't know the exact day or the hour she's going to have that baby and she can't predict it, she knows about when that baby is going to come. Um, The doctors know. They'll tell you that you can pretty much do what you want to do up to this period of time, and then as you get this closer to it. You know your limit on what you can do, where you can go, flying in planes, whatever. And um, you know, you get closer to that. The woman just senses and knows that um, that time is is getting close. And then, of course, she has the baby. Christians ought to be the same way. Uh, I don't know the day and the hour, but uh, of everything in history that we have at our disposal, plus everything in the Bible. Uh, you can certainly read and understand that we are um, about Israel is about to give birth, and the woman in travail is the nation of Israel, Revelation chapter 12 and 13. So we know that it's about to pop and it's about to happen. Uh, we're living in the times where you know we're we're right before uh, the rapture of the church, but we're also uh, right there at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, one of the other things that we're told not to be ignorant of is the is the rapture of the church, and the farther Christianity, pastors, churches, whatever, the farther they get away from the Bible, um, you know, the more busted the whole thing comes. And uh, you know, we're talking about child training on Sunday morning, and we're going through all of that, and and there's so many parallel concepts between Christianity and and a family. And I and I guess it's because of the fact that they're, you know, they're they're connected together. The strength of a church will only be as strong as the families and you know, and God's plan through the church to reach the world was family. So there's a lot of connections there. But We're in the latest in church age, and and we've now been this way since 1880s, so over 130 years uh, without a Bible. And we can naturally see the progression of damage that it has done. Every generation in that 130 years of people have gotten farther away from the Bible, where back in 1880 when the RSV came out, it was just a matter of, of maybe updating the words and changing this, and obviously they changed the text, and there was a mind behind it. But it wasn't like it was an immediate apostasy of everybody falling into it. Through a process of the generations of time, the devil has seen fit by reinforcing all the other bad Bibles that have come along. We now have seen that all the generations of people that have come in that time period Uh, They're so far now from where they were back then that it's unbelievable. Uh, I've said this many, many times. The basic fundamental truths that in the 1850s, 1880s, everybody on planet Earth in Christianity once believed have been completely forsaken today. And the parallel to that is the farther the church has went from the source of the Bible in generational, the more they don't understand it, the farther they get from God, the more they lose the concepts. So the family does the same thing. The longer the family goes generation after generation, um, getting farther from the Bible, They'll come to the place where in time where nobody in that, maybe the original parents were saved and maybe the kids of that parent were saved. But as the generations move on, you'll wind up and uh, they'll forget all about God. They'll forget all about this. I, I've told you before of a family that, that I know that uh, uh, the dad was probably one of the greatest preachers um, that, you know, you could ever want to hear. And uh, he, he, he was an incredible guy. And, but whatever, for whatever reason, the family never followed. And now, you know, uh, the, the kids, his direct kids, they got all screwed up and, and, and they still go to church, but they're in the wrong churches. And they're completely have forsaken everything that their dad taught them. Their kids are farther yet down the line. And the, their kids just married complete unsaved people. Uh, who know nothing about God, and so you 're seeing that in three or four more generations they won 't even remember who this guy was or what he did or the impact that he did that 's that 's what happens when you lose the source of truth, whether in your own personal life as a family or in a church and this is why i i i and I know you know believing what we believe today is not popular that 's because you know, a sirloin steak floating in a commode full of crap isn't very popular either. But that's where we're at. You know, we have the sirloin steak floating in a sea of crap. And that's, that's just about as best as I can say it. And I'm sure Gladys is not going out all over the world. But, that, but I can speak to you guys that way because that's what it is. I don't know what to tell you. There's hardly anything out there. And I know people... people You know, they don't like my negativity about, but I don't know. I'm I'm an Old Testament prophet put in the New Testament times to be negative about everything that's naturally negative. And uh, you know what? It's just the way it has to be. And you need to know the truth. The fact that some of you don't like the truth or some of you don't want to hear the truth doesn't mean that the truth is not important to some people. So we have lost all these things. So the second coming of Christ now is hardly ever preached on anymore. Uh, It's a vague concept that everybody expects to happen, everybody thinks is going to happen, but nobody really understands the details of it. And uh, you're going to find that that phrase or the concept, the day of the Lord, is, is found over a thousand times in the Old Testament, and it certainly is the key. And of course, the rapture of the church is connected to it, but yet it's separate. And because we have lost sight of the truth of the Bible, we've lost sight of these these valuable things that kind of put the Bible together. Nobody understands today that, nor would they accept, that the pictures in the Bible are really the key to understanding the Bible. And the reason for that is, as we have shifted in Christianity to an intellectual phase, and we did that through the neo-evangelical movement and the Um, you know, back in the 1800s when they wanted to take the Bible out of the common man and the neo-Orthodox movement and they wanted to put it back into the hands of scholarship. So the common things of the Bible that are so basic, that take no education to grasp, have been shunned because we've tried to prop it all up now with uh, the more you know. When a church, and I know this to be true, when a church looks for a pastor, uh, they don't care what he knows about the Bible. They don't care... You know uh, his plan for uh, uh, for uh, building the church or working with people, uh, all they want to know is where he's been to school and how much education he's got because we have been taught and trained that the more education you have, the closer you can get to God. when in reality, as I've told you many, many times, the devil takes the the natural progression of God and reverses it, just like evolution. So where we think or the world thinks that the Christian world, more education to get you closer to God in reality, the more education you get, the farther you get away from God. And that's the great trick that has fallen uh, upon Christianity. And uh, we, we fall into the trap that we think that bigger is better. Uh, the bigger the church, the more grandioso it is, uh, the more it has all of the enemies of the world that you want to have and, uh, and, uh, and, and identifies with it that God must be there. Just the opposite truth. Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. If all the Christian world thinks it's great, my position is it stinks based on that principle. And that's a pretty good thing to follow. Now, you take the first coming of Christ. Let me show you something. Uh, the similarities between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And you learn your Bible by learning the pictures. You know, many of you have got little kids and you know, when you want to teach them the Bible, you obviously don't buy them a wide margin and, you uh, know, in, in a strong concordance and, and go to work with them. When they're very young, you'll get them those Bibles that are picture book Bibles. And, uh, you know, they'll tell the story of Adam and Eve, and then you turn the page, and there'll be a picture that they can identify um, what really Adam and Eve's all about by the picture. Noah's Ark, same thing. Dan and the Lion, Dan, same thing. Every... Every story in the Bible, they'll illustrate it with a picture that helps the kid put it all together. Well, the Bible says that Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. So when it comes to the Bible, you know, God wrote us a book that is a picture book. And the way that you understand the deep things of the Bible is by looking at the pictures that are in the Bible. Now, we call them types, but uh, they're really pictures. The Bible is a picture book. It'll tell you a a fundamental truth and it'll give you four or five different pictures, types, illustrations that illustrate that principle. And the key to learning the Bible for you is not just to learn the Bible itself, but to understand the pictures. And that comes in time. One of the things that I do here uh, that I'm very uh, adamant about is showing you the types and showing you the pictures. Uh, Because that is what illuminates and illustrates the understanding of the Bible you have. Without the pictures, the Bible becomes a boring book. And that's why so many people quit reading it. That's why so many of God's people uh, can't get anything out of it. They come to the Bible. Uh, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible's the only book in the world. When you, got, when you come to it, you can't come to it with any intelligence. You can't come to it without any education. You can't come to it with your, any abilities. You've got to come to it as dumb as a stump and trust God to illuminate and show you what He wants you to see. And without that, uh, you don't get it. Turn over to John, chapter. I'm going to show you a great verse here, Gospel of John. Let's see here. Let me find what I want here. Oh, see, I want that verse where it says, and then they opened up their understanding. And they Where is it? Luke 24. I can't hear you. Luke 24. Luke I thought it was in John. Okay, go to Luke. No wonder I didn't find it. Yeah, here it is. 24:45. Now, this is one of the great, greatest verses in the Bible. That Luke chapter 24, verse 45, that um, gives you where the bottom line is. He says, "Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures." Now, you can have all the education in the world. If God, through the Holy Spirit of God, doesn't open up your understanding, then you ain't going to get anything. And of course, uh, uh, we, we, we don't understand that today. And when God wrote the Bible, He wrote it in the form of a picture book that you would have the pictures that illustrate the truth. Now we talk about the rapture and the second coming. Let me show you a good example of this. The, the consistency between the first coming and the second coming. When Jesus Christ came the first time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he comes privately to his family in the manger. And then at a period of time later, he manifests himself to the known world uh, when he manifests himself to the nation of Israel. That was the first coming of Christ. He manifested himself first to his family, his immediate family, And then he, later point, he became manifest to the world. Now let's look at the second coming of Christ. The first thing he will do is manifest himself intimately to his family. That's you and me, rapture the church. And that at a period of time later at the second coming of Christ, he'll manifest himself to the whole world and every eye shall see him. See how that works? Now a guy says, I don't believe the rapture. I don't care. The, 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 The Bible is so clear on it and gives so many indications of it that a man who, who stands against it is only declaring how inept he is with the Bible in the first place. I mean, it is through the whole concept is is there. And the second coming of Christ is, without a doubt, the, the fundamental backbone of the Bible, because with that is the establishment of the kingdom. And, uh, you know, the definitive passage on the second coming of Christ is found in Revelation chapter 19. Well, let's run over to Revelation chapter 19 and we'll see it. Oh, I look at verse 11. Revelation nineteen eleven, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness that he judge and make war. Now, there's two times in the book of Revelation where the heavens open. And uh, we use it as a dividing point in the book of Revelation. And it, it is that. Uh, if you want a, a quick and cheap and dirty outline of the book of Revelation... Then you have that Revelation 1, 2, and 3 will be the church age. Revelation chapter 4, a door opens up in heaven, somebody goes up. That's the rapture. And then from 5 to 18 is all the tribulation. And then in 19, a door is opened up in heaven and somebody comes down. And then that starts the series of events that closes out the book of Revelation 19, second coming, 20 is the millennium, 21 new heaven and new earth. 22 is eternity. So there you see that the whole book of the Bo- book of Revelation in the Bible is broken down around two places. But along with that, you see the connection between the second coming and the rapture. There are two events that are different, but they're connected. And one is where Christ comes to take his immediate family and he reveals himself to them. And the second place will be um, where, or the second coming will be uh, when he reveals himself to the whole world. Missing that concept and missing the concept of the second coming of Christ is one of the fundamental disasters uh, of Christianity today, not being able to figure out where they're at with the Lord. You and I should understand where we're at with the times and the season. The Bible is such a book in such a way that it tells you exactly where you're at no matter where you're living in history in approximate reality to the second coming of Christ. Along with that, I told you a couple of weeks ago about the book that I read years ago um, that said that the job of every Christian in, in any age that he lived in, the job of every Christian was to find out the prevailing spirit of the age that he is in and then use everything that he has in his power to go against that spirit. And every portion of church age, and the Bible breaks it down into seven, they have had a fundamental issue of the Bible that that was the spirit of their age. And uh, when you go back in history and you see that, then you see that the real Bible believers, that was the issue they were up against. Now, the issue that we're up against is the authority of the Word of God, because that's the final straw. That's where, that's where it all rests, and that is where um, it's all going to end, and the Lord's going put, put to the, put, the, put the end of that and deal with it. But everybody in history had an understanding where they were in relationship to uh, the second coming of Christ, so they knew what their job was. Now, take somebody who lived in 900 A.D., 1500 A.D. Let's give them an English Bible. Let's say that they, they, they 1600 on. Uh, they knew from the Bible that the Lord was probably, now they also knew that in such an hour you think not the Son of Man could come. I got that. But let's be realistic. The Bible has a timeline that God is following. They knew in 1500 that they weren't going to probably see the rapture in their time nor the second coming of Christ. They knew that. They knew that because the Bible gives you four or five indications that gives you the times and the seasons, and they would know that they're not in that time and that season. Now, you would think, the way we think, that when somebody found out that the Lord wasn't coming back in their time, and it was probably maybe another three or four hundred years, that that would just be the catalyst that most of God's people would just sit back and say, well, I don't have anything to worry about. And, And that is the mindset of Christianity today. Back in the day, when Christians were really Christians, and they really believed what they had, they never would have looked at it that way. They would have looked at it from the standpoint that they understood that He probably wasn't coming in their time, based on what the Bible shows them. But they also would understand that they had an issue and they had a job to do uh, and the time that they went to work. And that is based on something found over here in Matthew. Keep your finger in Revelation 19 and come back to Matthew. And I gave you this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Now, here in Matthew chapter 20, uh, and I told you this, did you have a 12-hour day starting at 6 in the morning going to 6 at night? And at 6 o'clock at night, the second coming of Christ takes place, the even. And I showed you how that anybody who understood the fundamentals of the Bible could have gotten a, an understanding of how this works. Uh, because you have a 12-hour day. We know that the church age is approximately uh, 2,000 years. So taking, taking a 12-hour day and dividing it into 2,000 years comes out with each one of these hours would represent about 166 years. This is much like what you did with Daniel uh, in the Daniel 70th week, except it's dealing with us here. And that would tell anybody that if you were living in 500 A.D., uh, you knew from this story that you had a ways to go before the Lord was going to come back. Because 500 A.D. would have been the third hour, the early in the morning being the apostles and when they go into work. Uh, if you lived in 1000 A.D., that would be the uh, sixth hour. Uh, you would know that you, from the passage, that you had a ways to go before he was probably going to come back. If you lived in 1500, that would be the ninth hour based on the formula. Then you know that you would you would be uh, you wouldn't be there yet. If you lived in around 1850, 1837, and you're following your Bible and you know your Bible as they did, not like today. You would see that that would be the 11th hour, and you would see that the last workers go in in 1837 before the Lord comes back uh, in verse 8. That means that you and I, in the Laodicean church age here in Old Paths Baptist Church, we're, we're the last shift going in before the Lord comes back. Man, the last workers went in in 1837. My goodness, we're almost, almost 200 years past that point. And so we're we're right at that 166 plus year mark where we're right there. Now, anybody who would read that would realize that these people going to work weren't sitting around and saying, well, he's not coming back for a while. They're, They're working in the vineyard based on what God has called them to do. They're not concerned about how far they are from him coming back. But every Christian ought to know in any place in dispensation, uh, down through history of the church, anyhow, where they're at and where they stand in relationship to the second coming of Christ. Now, I, I get it. The average pastor today will tell you and and will get you to believe that you shouldn't worry about those things and that those things are... Uh, things that, uh, you know, that people who um, are very exotic with the Bible and very, uh, that's what they spend all their time with. Well, again, he says that because he knows nothing about the Bible and he doesn't want you to find out about it. Let me tell you something. I understand these things and they don't stop me. It isn't something that I invest my life in. Uh, I invest my life in in the vineyard and do in the ministry. But Paul said of the times and the seasons, brother, and I have no need to write unto you. You need to know these things because the theme of the Bible, the hallmark of the Bible that everything points to, is going to be the second coming of Christ. So these are things that you need to, you need to see. Now there's a couple of places in the Bible that point to that. Come over to, Ma- uh, uh, come over to uh, Mark chapter 13. I'll show you another one. Now, we're, we're in Matthew, okay, where we just came from. And in Matthew chapter 20, it starts from 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night. And Matthew is dealing with the Jews and the kingdom of heaven. So the example in Matthew will have a Jewish slant to it based on what God is dealing with the nation of Israel, even though it covers our time period in the church age. When you get over to Mark, Mark's, Mark, is a, Mark is a different... Uh, book. Mark is a servant. We're not dealing so much with the king of the Jews here. So when Mark writes his account, the account is going to start from six o'clock at night, where the other one starts at 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. This one starts from 6 p.m. and goes through the whole night till 6 a.m. in the morning. It's just the reverse. We know the church age is a picture of the night. So this is going to be particularly for us. If you look up at our chart here uh, that we have up here, You're going to find over there where the line splits at the top. You're going to find the first watch, evening, second watch, midnight, third watch, cock crowing, fourth watch, the morning. That's based out of Mark chapter 13. You're going to see those on the chart in here as I read it. Now look at verse 32. "...but of the day and and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father." Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. Now that'll be the church age, 2,000 years. He's back up into heaven. Who left his house, Israel, and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. At even, or at midnight, or at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all: Watch. Now here we have the same two thousand year period, but it's broken down not into hours, but it's broken down into watches. So if we're going to take, follow the same uh, same pattern. We'll take these four watches and divide them into 2,000 years. So what we have then is the even will be the first 500 years of Christianity, bring us up to the beginning of the Dark Ages. The midnight will bring us up from 500 to 1,000. The cock crowing will bring us up from 1,000 to 1,500. And then the morning will bring us from 1,600 with the Reformation up to um, up to 2000, where we're at right now, 2017, soon to be 2018. So you have those four watches. Now, they're based on a nighttime. And in the Bible, uh, we know that uh, Christianity, the church age, is, uh, uh, is a, uh, uh, First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 7, Romans uh, chapter 13, 12. We know the church age picture is in the night. We are the light in the night. And uh, we, we know that. And so, in, as you would look at this, if you would go out on a regular night, and you, the darkest part of any night would be uh, uh, the end of the midnight watch uh, up to the uh, middle of the cock crowing watch. In other words, basically from 1 o'clock in the morning up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning is the darkest part of the night. It gets stays a little bit lighter on one side and begins to crack a little bit lighter on the other side, but that would be the darkest part of the night. In church history, uh, or in history, uh, when you have 1000 to 1500, which on a literal night is the darkest part of the night, which is represented in our chart as that period of time, that's when in history they known it as the Dark Ages. The darkest part of the church history night was from uh, the end of midnight into the cock crowing. And so everything just fits right through here. And then, of course, you have the morning. And, of course, the morning is when the Christ comes back. That's why Jesus Christ in Malachi chapter 4 is called the Son of Righteousness, but he's not spelled S-O-N as Son of God, but S-U-N as the sun in the sky. Uh, We're in the church age. We're in the nighttime. The sun is not up. Uh, You uh, are representatives of the sun. And at night, uh, you see the moon. Moon's a type of the church, Job chapter 25. Sun's a type of Christ, Malachi chapter 4. And at the nighttime, when the moon up, the moon doesn't shine by its own light. It shines by the light reflected by the sun. We're in a church age. We're in the dark. We don't have our own light. Christ is not here. The only light that's here is that the light that you and I reflect as the moon, the Christ, the child of God from the son of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. But there's a time coming when the morning comes and uh, the Lord comes back. Everything, uh, every song you ever heard about Christianity and the Lord coming back, it all takes place the eastern sky in the morning and, and he comes. And that is a picture found here in uh, in uh, uh, Mark chapter 13. So there's a number of places in the Bible that are illustrations and pictures of, of this. And of course, uh, it's a thing where uh, it's a picture where you see it. Now, let me show you one more here. Come over to Mark chapter 6, same book. Come back a few chapters. Now, here's a little more intimate picture that uh, I I think is a good one. And this is where... um, He just does a great miracle, and uh, the 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 disciples are much like us. They're they're they've gotten so much being with Christ that they have lost their true purpose, much like Christianity. And uh, you know they're arguing among themselves who's the greatest. They're taking their spiritual gift test, and everybody's coming out on top. Uh, it's, it's a great little deal. And uh, you know I, that I just fried me the other night. I just thought about that all. Uh, I mean, I just I just did. I just I just. You know, now you know as well as I do that in Christianity you have prideful people. Yeah, you have people who think themselves much more spiritually than they are. You know that's true. I, I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. How many of you have known pastors who were so spiritual and wanted to project such a spiritual thing that they had to project themselves so spiritual over the people that they would tell the people, well, I don't make any decision without praying, but I pray about everything. And they, yeah, okay, I know you know one, okay. And how many, how many pastors' wives have you met that painted themselves so spiritual would you keep your hand down? I, I, painted themselves so spiritual. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, you know those kind of people exist. I've got to ask you this. Do you think they're really going to be honest in a test? Do you really? You think a guy or a woman or a Christian who portrays themselves when they're not as somebody that's above everybody else, they're going to take that stupid test and be honest with it? They have a reputation to maintain. They have to come out with all the spiritual gifts that they can squeeze out of that stupid thing. When you are left, now you have a Bible given to you by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be done with this in a minute, but I, have to, I dreamed about this last night. I would, I'm, I'm glad we had Institute for one reason this morning. I've got to get this off my chest. Nothing else matters to me today. Can You, you have a Bible and a Holy Spirit of God You have everything in that book that tells you everything you need to do and be to be everything God wants you to be. Why would you rely on your own flesh to take a test put together by another man's flesh that hasn't got anything to do with the Bible and you determine your own spiritual gift instead of God through the Word of God and your growth determining what gifts you have? Now, I just, I don't get that. Other than, the answer is Laodicea. I'm fast putting together a sermon on the 10 stupid things that Christians do. Now, I hate the word stupid, but the longer I'm in this, the more friends I become with that word. I tell you, I, that that concept for a man To be a pastor and claim to know the Bible, who's going to tell his people, you rely on your own flesh to decide what your spiritual gifts are, and you take a test written by a guy that hasn't got one thing in it from the Bible, never mentioned one thing in it, and it's filled with the I, 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 I. Go back to Isaiah chapter 28 and Ezekiel chapter 14. I don't know why they, I don't know why somebody, look, I am the stupidest person on the planet. I'm so dumb, I don't even suspect anything. And I can see that. I just, I'm completely lost now, so forget it. Over here in Mark chapter 6, I just feel, I don't feel any better. I want you to know that. But I'm working on it. All right, verse 47. Now the disciples have got themselves just like we do. And verse 47, and this is a great picture of the church age too. And when even was come, that's six o'clock in the evening. I'm sorry, pick it up in verse uh, verse 45. And straight away he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side under Bethesda while he sent uh, away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Now keep in mind, he now has put his disciples in a ship. He has went up into a mountain. And when even was come, six o'clock, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. Now, They're out in the middle of the, this little sea, which is about three and a half miles wide at its wildest point in geography. So that means it's after six o'clock. It's a little bit later on. It's in the middle of the night. And yet he sees them. He sees them in that sea and their struggle. Now, this is a picture of the church age. The sea is a picture of humanity or people. We know that from the Bible. The fact that he sent them into the ship in the midst of the sea and he went up to a mountain to pray is a picture of right now Jesus Christ is on the right hand of God the Father in spiritual Mount Zion, Hebrews chapter uh, 9 and 10. Uh, and uh, he's praying with intercession for us. Now, what are they doing down here in this boat? Let's look down here. And he saw them toiling and toiling rowing. They're, they're, they're in the midst of the sea and everything is coming to them. They're, they're, the great wind, uh, there's great being tossed about, they're in great danger of floundering and they're, 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 they're scared to death and they have thinking that he has forsaken them and left them all alone. And in reality, it's a picture of the church age that you and I are in the midst of this sea in the midst of the greatest storm that the world has ever seen, against everything that you and I believe, and we are struggling, we are struggling to keep above water. The boat is about to sink, and we think that he has forsaken us, when in reality, he's on the mountain, seeing everything that we're going through in our toiling and rowing. And they weren't aware of it. Now, that's a picture where you're at today. Mel Sabaka uh, preached this message 40, 50 years ago, and I've got the outline. I've preached it many, many times. And uh, he laid it out in a marvelous way, uh, just like I have done here, not as marvelous as he did, but I mean, in giving you the details. And then he asked a question. He saw them toiling and rowing, and they're afraid of the wind, they're afraid of the sea, they're afraid of everything that's going on. They're not conscious of the fact that he is watching them every moment of the day. And as you see down the end of the story, he absolutely had control over the waves and the wind and the sea. And they asked the question, what should we be doing? And the answer was, rowing the boat. We're in the middle of a storm. We're in the middle of a a terrible storm in the Christianity. The winds are howling. Go out there and it looks like sometimes you're all by yourself, but know and take take heart in the fact that he sees everything that we're going on. And your job and my job is not to be afraid of the wind, not to be afraid of the sea, not to be afraid of the unknown. Your job and my job is to sit down, pick up an oar and row the boat. Now watch. Remember I just gave you back there and Mark about the uh, the fourth watch the morning. Remember that? The second coming of Christ, look at verse 48. And when he saw them toning and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he come upon them walking upon the sea and would have passed them by. There's the rapture of the church right there. Fourth watch. Break the break of the morning. And he says down there one of the greatest verses, and the wind was contrary unto them. That wind of the world will always be contrary to you. Your job and my job is to row the boat. Row the boat. It's going to be tough. You're going to have some things. Some things will be your own stupid mistakes. Some things you won't have anything to do with. You'll just get clobbered with. My advice to you is no matter what, get it right, put it together, and row the boat. Row the boat. Sit down, pick up an oar, and row. Row through the storm because he's coming, and he's walking on the water. There's the deep up there. He come down through it, and he's coming down, and uh, he's going to deliver them. For when they all saw him, they were troubled, and immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I not afraid. And he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were all with sore amazed. I want you to notice something. He comes to them on the fourth watch, picture of Christianity, latest in church age. They didn't even recognize him when he showed up. You know when they recognized who he was? When he spoke you know why they didn't recognize him? Because they had forgotten what he said. And their apparition of Jesus Christ, what they thought Christ was and who he was and what he is, wasn't real. So when the real deal came to them, they didn't even recognize who he was and they were afraid of him. And it wasn't until he spoke his word You want to find out who he really is and not lose your perspective of who he is and not get caught up like so many other churches that are going to have church tomorrow and think Jesus is there when he's not? Keep the book. Keep what he says. It'll never do you wrong. It'll never do you wrong. And he went up unto them, into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. Uh, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, and their heart was hardened. There we are. You see, we as God's people have forgotten the miracles that God has done in our lives. Number one, first and foremost, the miracle of your own new birth and salvation. And now here you are, say, 5, 10, 15 years. You got everything you want. You got your Bible. You got everything. And in the midst of all that, with these disciples, every day with the Lord, their heart got hardened. Now, if that can happen to them when they're in his midst all the time, what do you think you have to do and I have to do to make sure it doesn't happen to us? See? Now, all these are pictures of the second coming and the Lord coming. Now, let's go back to Revelation chapter 19. And those are the places that show you that you as a Christian should be aware of where you're at in perspective to him coming back. Verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him that is called upon him called Faithful and True, and in righteousness that he judge and make war." Now there is uh there is the uh, there is the heaven open, there's the white horse, and I told you before there's two white horse riders in the book of Revelation. One of them is in Revelation chapter 6, the other one's in Revelation chapter 19. And just to prove my point of what I just read back there in Mark chapter 6, the white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6, every Every bastion of orthodoxy Bible college on the planet today will teach you that the white horse rider of Revelation chapter six is the, is the Lord, and in reality, the white horse rider of Revelation chapter six is the Antichrist. See, they didn't even recognize who he was when he walked; he almost passed them by. They were just there towing and rowing, and somebody said, "Well, look, somebody's walking on the water. He's coming this way." He says, "Shut up, row rowing the boat. I don't know who that idiot is, but he ain't with us. It was the Lord." And it wasn't until he spoke that they recognized who he was. And you, you, can have your, you can have your picture in your mind of the Lord Jesus Christ all you want. You can have your church service and pretend he's there, pretend who he is, but unless you have his words speaking out of that book, you don't have him. You just got a figment of your imagination of him. A white horse, and he that sat it was called faithful and true. Uh, He's faithful and he's true. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. You'll find that uh, war throughout the Bible. Uh, You'll find it in the book of Revelation, a couple of different places. And um, come back to Revelation chapter. uh, Revelation chapter 14. Now, at the second coming of Christ, here's how it works. The Antichrist is persecuting the nation of Israel and he is chasing them. They run into the wilderness. He's chasing them uh, wherever he can catch them and he's killing them. He finally, finally traps them down in the Valley of Armageddon. This is called the Valley of Megiddo. And now that he traps them down there in the Valley of Armageddon, and the Valley of Armageddon uh, is a, uh, you know, it's a a valley surrounded by mountains that is about 160 miles uh, in circumference. It's a very large place. And he traps them down there, and he completely, completely surrounds them, and now he's got them. There's no way out, and they're trapped in this huge uh, valley surrounded by mountains that looks like a big barrel, so to speak. And just as he's getting ready to come down and destroy them, the Lord comes back. And he raptures out the tribulation saints. This is called the post-tribulation rapture that we've talked about, the third part of the harvest. He takes them out. At the same time, he descends on the Antichrist armies in his valley. And he completely decimates them. He, it's a battle that takes place that uh, wipes out everything that the Antichrist had going for him. And uh, when you get into Revelation chapter 14, now that I've explained it to you, you see how it works. Let me read it for you. Verse 14, 14, 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The harvest of the earth is the third part, and that is the tribulation saints. Remember, the rapture has three parts to it. The rapture is a harvest. You have the first fruits. That's the stuff that's ripe early in any harvest. That's the Old Testament saints. Go up with Christ. You have the main body of the harvest. That'll be the church. That takes place any moment. And then you have, in a regular harvest, what doesn't get ripe at the main harvest, and you've got to come back and get it, and that's called the gleanings. That'll be the, that'll be the tribulation change. And so he has a, uh, he says, Thrust in thy sickle, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he thrust. And he sat on the cloud, uh, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. There they go. They go up. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And uh, another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire and cried with the Lord's voice and had had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather uh, the clusters of the vine uh, of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. This will be the Antichrist people uh, and all the armies that are with him, probably some 400, 500 million strong, have come against the nation of Israel. They're down in the valley. Now, the thing that I want you to look at is he tell, he, he likens these people to clusters of grapes. Now, watch. And the angel thrust in his sickle uh, into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That winepress will be the valley of, of Armageddon, that is like a barrel or a wine press. So, all these Antichrist armies get slapped into this valley. They go after the nation of Israel. Israel gets pulled out. They get trapped in it. And it says, And the angel thrust his sickle under the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the wine press even under the horses' bridles for the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That means that that means that it's gonna be at least the blood's gonna be three and a half feet high, and that uh, one thousand six hundred furlongs is a hundred and sixty miles. It's gonna fill that valley to three and a half feet with human blood. Now, um, I want you to come back to Isaiah 63. I'm just going to show you a couple of places. There's a lot of places that deal with this, but I just want to show you a few. Come back to Isaiah 63. It's filled in the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. 63, 1, 2, and 3, and 4. Who is this that cometh from Edom, with dyed garments from Bozrah, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Now this is the Lord at the second coming of Christ. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, where, here comes, "...wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat." Just like we read in Revelation 14. "...I have trodden the wine press alone." That's the valley with everybody in it, where the blood's going to be three and a half feet high, 160 miles around. "...and with the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury." and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now that is the second coming of Christ. That's a reference to it. And uh, it's a reference to Him coming down in that valley with all those people in it, stomping them like somebody stomping out grapes in a wine fat, and the grape juice or the blood staining His very raiment uh, and getting on His white robe because of the fact that He's trotting them in His anger and His fierce wrath. And uh, now when you come back to Revelation chapter 19, now let's see it. And I saw heaven opened, and uh, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flaming fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, here it is, dipped in blood. See that thing? Now there's all your references. Now I'm going to, don't have time to go through them, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the references in your Bible on the wine press of God, which will all be second crumbling. There's quite a few of them, so I'll go slow, get them down. Don't ask me what was it again. <laughs> Obviously, the first one is in Revelation 14.10. The second one was Isaiah 63.1. Habakkuk 3.15. Revelation 14, verses 19 through 20. Revelation sixteen fourteen Daniel two thirty four it might be a nine. At least I'm honest to you, (laughs) Jeremiah forty seven three Joel Chapter two verse twenty five Jeremiah 25:30 Joel 3:13 Isaiah 28:24 Habakkuk 3:12 Micaiah three twelve. Ezekiel ten ten. And Micaiah four thirteen. Now there's plenty of other places, but those are your main ones. And uh So verse 13 says, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, here again, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, if there's only one Christ, and his name is the Word of God, how in the world do we have more than one Bible? To me, that is a simple, simple equation. That is like the easiest thing to put together. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Is there more than one Christ? Then how can there be more than one Bible? If you had more than one Christ that said two different things, which one would you follow? Better yet, if you had 500 Christ and all said different things, which one would you follow? you see the dilemma you're in? Now, if you really believe that he is the word of God, and I guess maybe that's the fundamental problem. You don't believe that. or Maybe you're just so stupid that you never figured it out. I just added, a, just added an 11th one. But anyway, uh, how do you come to that conclusion? I mean, honestly. If if you had 500 Jesuses sitting in an auditorium and everyone stood up and told you to do something different based on them being the Lord Jesus, what what confusion would that be? Well, if the Bible from its own, not me, this isn't the madman Bob giving you his heresy, it said his name is called the Word of God. John 1 says, in the Word, was the, Word. the Word was with God, the Word was God. It was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's not my... That's not my making that up. If there's only one Jesus, then there has to be only one Bible to be a final authority. If you had five hundred Jesus, the devil telling you to do something different, and you got five hundred translations and they all tell you something different. To me it's a it's it's not a it's a no-brainer, but Verse fourteen. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen. White and clean. Now, if you come up to verse eight, um, you'll see that who uh, who these people are. Verse seven: and let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, that's you and me. That's the church, and it looks like <coughs> it looks like the judgment seat of Christ takes place. We get raptured, and while the tribulation is going on down here, and Israel is going through their judgment, it looks like from the Bible that we're going through our judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, I've always took great heart in that because that seemingly puts a time limit on it, and uh, I know most of most Christians, uh, many Christians that I know. It's going to take longer than seven years just to get through their problems, so if they go first, then I won't have to worry about mine. But that's probably not going to work out for me very well, but anyway. But it's a thing where this is the church, and notice it says uh, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 7 says that she has made herself ready. That means she went to the judgment seat of Christ, and now she is granted these things. So when it says, and the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, there they are. There's your, there's your cross-reference. Now I must tell you, I must tell you, and this is a fear, that it looks like those who don't make it at the judgment seat of Christ, as far as getting a white robe, don't come back with him. Um... That's a very scary thought. Don't ask me what you do or where you go. I have no clue. But he's pretty adamant about it that the only ones that come back in his army are the ones who get white linen, uh, which is the righteousness of the saints, and have made themselves ready, and these white robes are handed out to them. Now, we know that some people at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be, are going to be naked and not get a robe. Now, what happens to them and where they go during this period of time, I don't have a clue, but it's pretty obvious from here they don't come back. I mean, I wouldn't want to take away from the second coming of Christ and all how glorious and grand it is an army coming back with a 100 billion saints with white robes, riding on white horses. It just seems to me that taking away from that would be a bunch of them naked on white horses. (laughs) Maybe that's just me. I don't know where we go, but it looks like we don't come back at that point with him. And uh, that should be a concern. And of course, uh, this is the definitive passage on it. Now, I got to be honest with you and tell you this. Back in Judges chapter 5, verse 10, there's context there is the second coming of Christ. And there's people coming back with this army on white asses, jackasses, mules. Now, my mind just gets too going too fast sometimes for my own good. I've always thought, this is just a selfish personal thing here. I've always worried and wondered about the fact that, you know, none of us want to die. Paul said for me to live as Christ and die as gain, he lived his life like he was ready to die every day if that's what it took. We don't live our lives that way. We try to stretch it out as much as we can. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm just saying it's always bothered me. Everybody thinks the, the rapture is such a great deal. You know why you think it's a rapture? And I think it's a great deal, too. Theologically, I understand it. But you know why so many people think it's a great deal and want to go in a rapture? Because we want to live our lives as long as we can here. Now, I, I, I just know how God thinks, you know. And I know God gets inside our heads, and he looks at the real intent of the heart and all that. And I'm always worried about this. It might just be. I don't, don't think so, but it might just be. That all of us that want to live our lives forever and go into rapture, and all the saints that have died paid the price and went home and got God God, God, but we wanted to hang on for life forever. Maybe by the time we get up there all the white horses are taken. You get up there at a rapture church and say, Where's my white horse? And the Lord says, Well, you wanted to live down there all this time. We don't they're all gone. But we have a whole stable of white asses over here. Why don't you go pick yourself one out? you ever see a jackass compared to a horse? I'm not talking about within Christianity. Man, oh, I go over to Gary Potter's, go over on the other side there and do my, my coyote deal. I have to walk through a pasture where he rents it out to a guy who, who just people bring their horses there. And these are pet horses, and they are, they are the sweetest, kindest horses on the planet. Some of you have been out there, you were over to the fence, and they'll come right up to you. I've been sitting down there, honkered down, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden, I feel this, <laughs> behind my head, and I look, and that horse is standing right there looking down at me, you know, once you want me to pet I always carry apples with me, give them apples, you know. But they are majestic. They're absolutely beautiful. They stand there with their heads, their tails, swashing, you know, hoofs. I mean, they're majestic. Put a horse like that alongside of an ass who is stubborn, who sometimes you have to hit in the head with a baseball bat to get him to move, who will sit down and not move. If they're on a railroad track and a train's coming, and going to run them over. If they get the idea they want to sit down, they're going to get hit with a train. It doesn't matter that you can point to it and say, it's 100 yards away, his whistle is blowing, he's going to run you over. I'm a jackass. I'm going to sit where I'm going to sit. Man, is that a good sermon. (laughs) Some of God's people, you're like fine stallion racehorses that are majestic. And some of God's people are like jackasses that you're going to sit on a railroad track and a train is going to run you over and you're going to stay there. I could preach that. Now, personally, from the Bible standpoint, I worry about things like that, but I don't think that's probably true. I think the white asses are probably the Old Testament saints come back on the white asses. The passage back there in Judges 5 seems to lead that way. So I would say that the white horses are for the church, minus the naked folks. And the white asses are probably for the nation of Israel. But it looks like that at the second coming of Christ that it's a thing where they, uh, the, the people who didn't make themselves ready and get a white robe don't come back. Uh, now they show up obviously in the millennium, but where they go at this point, I don't know. Personally, and I know it's perspective, second coming of Christ was the theme of the Bible. Second coming of Christ is the greatest point in history. You know that in the newspaper world, the headlines, they have, I don't know if you know this or not, but the headlines get bigger as the event gets bigger. You know what the biggest headlines on a newspaper are called? Second coming headings. That's what they would use to announce the second coming of Christ. That's what the newspapers call it. Second coming headings. It's the biggest headline you can get. They call it second coming headings. The second coming of Christ is without a doubt the greatest event in history. It's the greatest thing that everything, I mean, uh, uh, history before, with B.C., before Christ, uh, uh, after that it's A.D. in the year of our Lord. thinking that that's the year he's going to come back. Everything in the world is the greatest event in the history of planet Earth will be, will be the second coming of Christ. I cannot think how absolutely disparaging that would be. That we go told to sit over here, you're not going. I mean, why should we go? I mean, it's a victory battle. Why should God's people who caved in in every battle in life to the world, the flesh, and the devil ever ride on the white horse in the greatest battle the world has ever seen? That battle is reserved for soldiers. That battle is reserved for men and women who slugged it out and got the victory every day over the world, the flesh, and the devil, not somebody who caved in. And I, from my own practical standpoint, I think the most terrible thing that could ever happen to a Christian. I know you can't go to hell, and I know at the judgment seat of Christ, losing everything is going to be a devastating time for a lot of us. But I think the insult upon injury would be once you walk out of that throne room and you're absolutely naked as a jaybird and everybody else is saddling up to go back, And you're headed to the holding area. And the greatest battle in the history of the world. The greatest event in the history of the world. The day of the Lord. That day. The second coming of Christ. And we have to miss it. I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know what to tell you. Now, I'm going to tell you. You don't hear a Bible like that anywhere, anywhere on this planet today. You don't. I, I, I'm not saying this because it's me. I'm just saying it because you wouldn't find probably five guys in this, in this city that would just tell you what I just told you. I'm just telling you that. Nobody wants to hear it, first of all. And second of all, they don't, they don't even get to that point themselves. I'm not expecting to get anything there. But I may also understand what it's all about. I see it. I understand it. I read it. I can read, and I believe what I read. I can see the pictures. God lays them out very clearly, and they're right there. And if they have that great day, the greatest day in the history of the world, so many of God's people are going to have to take a back seat to it and do whatever they're going to do. Wouldn't it be a great thing? This is the way I think. You know, a lot of God's people have their toys right now. Their boats, their cars, their motorcycles, their this, their that, their airplanes, their money, their banks, their, their clothes, whatever. And right now in their life, that is their number one thing that they're into all of their life. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at all wouldn't it be something if when that judgment seat of Christ takes place and some of us come out of there as naked as a jaybird because those were our things over against the things of God. And we walk out of there and all the white robed servants are just hooping and hollering and praising the Lord and the Lord walks out with a big smile on his face and he, he climbs up on that big white horse boy and that thing rears back And everybody's yelling and screaming, glory to God. And he looks around to all the saints in white robes and says, mount up! And 10 billion people mount up. And they all form a line, goes for light years. And he's up at the front of that thing, and there is a whole bunch of God's people from the church age, naked as can be. And about that time, you're ushered into a room, and while the greatest event in history is taking place and you're missing it, you know what it has for you? There's your favorite toy to play with. (laughs) There's your boat. Sit in it and drink a few PBRs. There's your car. Drive around the Golden Streets. I brought your wardrobe up here. Here's your big house. I even put it on a hill. Go hang out there for a while. And while all that's going on, not only are you dealt with the fact that you've lost everything in your inheritance, now that you know what you put all of your world in, your toys, meant nothing now, he gives them back to you to play with because they were so important to you down here. While the real work gets done don't put that past God. I see too many things in that Bible where God does things just like that. If God will give a man a lie to believe because that man wants to believe it, don't you think if that man's a saved man that that lie won't carry all the way into the great wife, to the judgment seat of Christ and on into, uh, into the millennium. How about that? The whole, you hear those horses going down there and the battle's taking place, and here you hush it in and there's all your toys. And they say, have fun with it. This is, this is your reward. See those guys on those horses? They sacrificed, they gave everything up, they slugged it out, and they fought the battle. You played with your boats on Sunday. You went to here and did this. You you were fishing all the time. We got you a gold studded fishing rod. The only problem is you cast it in the river of life because the fish look up and see it's you, they won't bite. That was a joke. Aren't you too somber right now? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? That would be something. You see, if God's people would think about things like that. You tell me that wouldn't keep you straight? Tell me that wouldn't do something for you if you thought those thoughts going through your mind all the time. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you. It's wild there. I even got into my stuff in hell yet. What that's gonna be like. Verse 15. And out of his mouth. Uh oh, here we go. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, which he should smite the nation. You notice it's singular sword? You know what doesn't say, and out of his mouth goes a sharp butter knife, <laughs> pocket knife, penknife, a sharp sword, with he should smite the nations. You know why he's gonna smite the nations with it? That it's the word of God and that word of God is the judgments that are pronounced in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the pictures. Every judgment that God is going to pour out uh, in the uh, tribulation period uh, on the nations is recorded for you in the Old Testament. The book of Ezekiel, if I remember right, the book of Ezekiel is um, three or four messages up until you get to a point. And um, they're all dealing with the judgments. One, of, one section is dealing with the judgments on Israel. Another section is dealing with the judgments on the Gentiles. And um, it's all second coming stuff. All second coming stuff. And of course, out of his mouth go with a sharp sword, with which he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now the rod of iron and the ruling there will be what we're going to talk about next time. And that will be the millennial reign of Christ. And um, that's, that's what you have. And um, so that's the rod of iron that he's talking about. We'll we'll get into that next time. Um, And then it says, And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And um, there's the winepress again. There's going back to Isaiah 63, Revelation 14, and all the other places that I, I gave you. You see, when you understand that concept of the Valley of Armageddon, how it's a valley and it's like a wine press, like a wine vat, um, that's how they used to make wine. They used to have a, a barrel that used to come up that high. They'd fill it up with grapes and then two or three ladies would get in it and and s- squash them with their feet for a couple of hours and it would press them down and the grape juice would come out. Then they'd pull the grape juice out of it. That's how they made grape juice. <laughs> you know, I mean... Women with big feet were a real premium back at that point in time. And, uh, and if the, you know, clean big feet, by the way, I need to put that in there too. Uh, gives the fine, a funny taste. But anyway, um, so that's, you find that. And that's the picture. And it, it illustrates for us exactly what that battle is. And of course, it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 39 uh, verses 4 through 12 tells us that after this battle, that it actually takes seven months for everybody to bury the dead uh, out of that battle. There's other places in the Bible that talks about people traveling through the land after this battle, and the stink from all the carcasses, you know, uh, uh, is, is, is just unbearable. But it actually takes them seven months to bury the dead. And you'll find that in Ezekiel chapter uh, 39, verses 4 through 12. And, uh, and then it says in verse 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings uh, and Lord of lords. And this is, where, um, this is where he takes over complete control of the earth. This begins, and this is what we're going to get into next week or next time, This begins the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. This begins the millennium. Uh, This begins him uh, setting up in Jerusalem all the different facets of that. And uh, and it it deals with the second coming and him being established now as, as the king. This is, without a doubt, this is the greatest day in the history of the world. You know, everybody thinks, and rightly so, And, you know, I talk about it all the time, that as a Christian, one of the things we get messed up in, I know preachers do, we have a tendency to, when we read the Bible, uh, we read the Bible from our own perspective as as a Christian. And and I totally get that, because we live in a time of Christianity. Christianity, I mean, all the time in history should be important, but let's be honest. We live in a time period that's more important to us because we're living in it. So we make a fatal m- flaw mistake in, in, in doing that. And that is that we have a tendency to to read the Bible and we read everything in the Bible um, through the viewpoint of of New Testament Christianity. And, and so because of that, uh, we get a lot of bad teachings that come out of it. I, I don't know of any books anywhere on the planet other than... Uh, uh, Dr. Ruckman's material, and um, if you before that, you'd have to go back to Clarence Larkin, uh, who um, does any kind of decent job on explaining the millennium. Uh, I would tell you right now, probably 9899999999 percent of any book material sermon that you'll listen to on the millennium will be wrong. You may find somebody out there that. Put something out. I, I don't. Uh, other major writers, um, they're worthless. Absolutely worthless. Uh, it's like the tribulation period. Um, they're worthless. And the reason why they're worthless is because they view these future events through Christianity and they tend to read Christianity into all the other parts of the Bible and history. And, you know, you can't do that. And I've I, I learned years and years and years ago, and I've told everybody this for, for hundreds of years. I've told them this. When it comes to the Bible and studying the Bible, you never read or study the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You read and study the Bible from God's standpoint because Christianity is just a small part of an overall 7,000-year period. And what you do when you study everything in the Bible, Old Testament and future, through that prism, then you bring everything from it into that. When you step back and put New Testament Christianity in a context and you look at it from a distance and see how God sees it, then every dispensation of God has its different flavor to it and different things that God is doing, and you're not locked into a mindset. And and that's what happens with this. And, uh, you know, that's why you can't find any good material on it. Uh, You just can't. They're locked um, into... to what they believe and what they know in Christianity, and they read that into everything that God's doing, and it, it that's not that's not the way it works. Nothing in the millennium, nothing in the millennium, nothing in the millennium, will be anything like anything in the church age. In the tribulation period, we looked at it last time. Nothing in the tribulation is like the church. It's a different gospel. It's a different kingdom. Nothing, how somebody could think that they're the same and they're going to operate the same when it's not even the same gospel. But we get locked in. We call this occupational dominancy. What we're at and what we're doing is the most important thing and everything else on the outside is viewed through what I'm doing now. And that's not the way you come to the Bible. You've got to come to the Bible by throwing what you are at out here and looking at the whole perspective of what God's doing. Then and only then are you going to grasp it and you're going to get it. So, you know, um, that's, that's, that's where it is. And he, he is now established as the king. And all the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of him. And they belong to him. And this is going to usher in uh, uh, the millennium. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather uh, yourselves Uh, to the great supper of God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond both small and great. Now notice the word small and great there. You're going to find that popping up at the Great White Throne Judgment here uh, when we get to it. Now, this is the Battle of Armageddon and this is the aftermath when he calls down all of the birds to uh, eat uh, and to eat and be partakers of all the dead bodies that are there. And this is where some of the terms that we use in life come from that we don't even know. This is where strictly for the birds come from. I mean, it's, it's a thing where that this is strictly for the birds. And uh, they come down here and they're all carnivorous, uh, flesh-devouring uh, Unclean animals that are likened to demonics, uh, things in the Bible. And let me give you the references on these uh, so you have it. And the uh, first one will be Isaiah 46:11, 11. Uh, Job chapter 39, verse 30. I already gave you Ezekiel 39, 4 through 12. That's the sixth month, seventh month bearing the dead. Uh, Ezekiel 32, 4. Ezekiel 17, 13, Ezekiel 16, 12, Ezekiel 9, 15, uh, and Isaiah 18, 6. And uh, this is the, you know, this is, this is how it works um, at the greatest day in the history of the world. And it's a thing where that every eye will see him when he comes back. It's going to be a worldwide event. Uh, It's very clear that the first coming of Christ, where he shows up to his family first privately and then 30 years later publicly to the world, um, is a picture of the second coming where the rapture of the church, he shows up to his family first, us, rapture, and then uh, at a later date to the whole world, second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ is the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of history. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, th- ever thought about it or not, but the uh, number one problem down through the history of man has been uh, uh, authority. It's always been the problem. That's the number one issue with Gentiles. Uh, the number one issue with Gentiles, at the end of the day, who's going to run what? And that's Romans chapter one. And uh, the whole issue of history of man has been, at the end of the day, who's going to be in charge of who? Uh, that's why you have wars. Wars are fought solely because somebody wants to own something somebody else has, a country. So they want to take it over. Uh, they want to dominate the world. And, of course, that's, uh, uh, every, everything in history that man does is an image in and in a foreshadowing of the great battle that's going to come. And uh, the greatest battle that's going to ever hit this planet will be the final battle that all the other battles down through history have been just mimics of. And that will be at the end of the day, day of the Lord, who's going to run what? And the answer is be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Everything else in history is just an uh, imitation of that. It's showing you that the number one problem in the planet Earth will be, has always been at who's going to run what. And when it comes to authority, uh, there can be many authorities. Um, You get husbands and wives, they have problems because she wants one thing, he wants something, and they're both authoritative about it. Countries have authoritative within their own government. Uh, Countries go to war because two authorities want to put their authority out over the other. In life, you can have all kinds of authorities, and all kinds of authorities is what brings chaos and anarchy and problems. In life, as in Christianity, as in anything, you can have all kinds of authorities. But you can only have one authority, final authority. And uh, when it comes to a family, there has to be one final authority. Doesn't mean the wife doesn't have her say, but there has to be a final authority. When it comes to churches, everybody can have what they want and say what they want. There has to be one final authority. And when it comes to Christianity, there has to be one final authority. And that final authority will be a King James 1611 authorized version. And when it comes to life on planet Earth, things will never come or there will ever be peace on Earth, goodwill toward men, till all the other authorities are swept aside. And the Lord Jesus Christ sits down on that throne in Jerusalem and becomes the final authority for planet Earth. Second coming of Christ. Well, we we'll are hold up there.